I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and this is The Truth of the Matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. In today's episode of The Truth of the Matter, I'm flying solo as Bob Schieffer is out of town. To get to the truth of the matter about the escalating terrorism problem in the United States, I've got my great colleague and great friend, Dr. Seth Jones. Seth, thanks for being here today. So your report, which is called The Escalating Terrorism Problem in the United States, has become really the benchmark for just about every piece of reporting that I've seen in the media. I know that you've been briefing members of Congress. I know you've been talking to people in the administration, all kinds of groups. Why does this report have so much resonance right now? I mean, obviously the data sets are really revealing. Will you tell me about that? Yeah, Andrew. So what we tried to do is take a long-term look at the domestic terrorism problem uh, or the data in the United States. There's been a lot of focus on international terrorism and understandably so from groups like Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. What we tried to do is look specifically at attacks and plots that were happening in the United States and go back to the 1990s. So to look over several decades at what the trends are and we broke the data as is this pretty common standard in the terrorism literature into five categories, what we called right-wing terrorism, which include everything from white supremacists to those that have targeted individuals for abortion. We had a second category of left-wing terrorism, which includes individuals who oppose capitalism, imperialism, and then some of the extremist environmental groups We've got religious terrorism, which can include everything from fringe groups that use violence in support of Islam, Judaism, Christianity, or others. And then finally, ethno-nationalist terrorism, which is violence in support of ethnic or nationalist goals. We do have a fifth category of others that don't quite fit into any of these categories. And that's a pretty big set. So when you look at the numbers there, you're talking about almost a thousand attacks and plots And I think what we found most interesting is the shift over the last couple of years in attacks and plots uh, to far-right groups. Far-right groups are increasingly active in conducting attacks and putting together plots to commit violence in the United States. And that is the trend and the data point that in particular got a lot of people interested. So the report looks at really a couple different data sets. So it analyzes the data in two parts, terrorist incidents and terrorist fatalities. Tell us about the numbers that really stand out. So when we look, Andrew, at terrorist attacks and plots, so setting aside fatalities for the moment, we see you know, some trends that aren't going to surprise people for part of the period. So when you look, for example, after 9-11, there were a number of attacks and plots from individuals motivated by Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State, what we call Salafi jihadists. 
But as we get into the last few years, what we see is a huge shift towards the far right. In fact, by 2019, over 60% of the attacks and plots are coming from right-wing individuals, the white supremacists, anti-government militias. And by the time we cut off the data set in 2020, there were over 90% of the plots and attacks were coming from far-right organizations. It's actually a similar concern we're seeing in Europe where there's been a rise in far-right activity. When it comes to fatalities, the story is a little bit different, which is that it's the religious terrorists, particularly the jihadists, that have killed the most people. Think for a moment about the scale of the September 11th attacks. They killed almost 3,000 people. It's a huge magnitude of deaths. But at the same time, what we see is that on a year-by-year basis, in 14 of the 21 years we looked at, the majority of deaths in that year or fatalities were caused by right-wing attacks. So, you know, there's the broader general trend, which uh, shows a high level of fatalities from jihadist activity, and then a year-by-year trend, which does show a fair amount of activity and violence and fatalities from the far right. So are these right-wing groups that seem to be rising in the past couple of years, are these the kinds of groups or individuals like Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber? Who are these people? What are these groups that you're looking at? And what's the motivation? This is really the $64,000 question, Andrew. What we're looking at is sort of three broad types of individuals and networks. The first are white supremacists. The second are anti-government extremists. These are generally militia forces. And then the third are the involuntary celibates or the incels. I think what's important to note in all three of these categories is that they operate under a decentralized model. There's really, in most cases, not a clear organizational structure, hierarchy, leader of any of these networks. They operate along the lines of what the white supremacist Louis Beam advocated. He called it leaderless resistance to target the U.S. government. It's a decentralized model, and that's what we see. There are some organized components, particularly of white supremacists, the Adam Waffen division, the base, and obviously the Klan. Those have some kind of organizational structure, and certainly at local levels. But with others, what we do see is a lot of activity, and this is new from the Timothy McVeigh period, a lot of activity from digital platforms. They're very active on Facebook, MeWe, Discord, Twitch, Enchan, even Twitter, YouTube, Reddit, 8kun, 4chan. They're pretty active on all these fronts, including communicating with far-right neo-Nazi organizations in the UK in the Nordic countries, in Germany, and elsewhere. So the white supremacists in particular on the far right, I think, pose the most serious threat, and they're very well armed. Many of them have stockpiles of weapons. Some are former U.S. military uh, veterans or, in some cases, active duty. So very concerning and a, a serious handful for law enforcement agencies. Where is this really coming from in your view? I mean, one group you didn't mention was one we keep hearing in the news, the Boogaloo Boys. Can you tell us who they are and 
also, you know, you mentioned some of these groups and, you know, the leader list issue. Where is this all coming from? It seems like it's really been on the rise in the past several years, or is it not on the rise and we're just noticing it more? Yeah, good questions. For the Boogaloo, I mean, the Boogaloo, I didn't mention in the far right category, in part because they sort of confound a clear label. The focus of much of the Boogaloo, and and they actually have elements really of far right, including white supremacists, but also sort of far left, almost anarchist ideologies. In fact, I was talking to an FBI agent recently. They've been involved in interrogating Boogaloo members that have been arrested. And, you know, what this FBI agent said is, you know, you ask a Boogaloo sympathizer what their ideology is, and you'll get a different answer for each one. So it's a pretty diverse network of individuals. What is concerning, though, is they are advocating a second civil war in the United States. So violence is a core component. They do not trust the U.S. government, although several members, including an attack on the West Coast of the United States, was perpetrated by an active duty U.S. military official targeting a police officer. So the big issue with Boogaloo is that they support an overthrow of the government and a second civil war. And again, what they want after that really depends on which Boogaloo sympathizer you're talking to. For some, it is something closer to a white-only state. When you talk more broadly about what's motivating them recently, I think there are a few things that are doing it. One is there is this fear over the past half decade or so particularly with an increase in Syrian refugees and then immigrants from a range of different countries. In Europe, it's immigrants coming from Africa or Turkey or other locations. In the U.S., it's immigrants coming in from Latin America. This has created this fear of their white societies being replaced. It's what many of them call the great replacement conspiracy. And so what they believe is there is a demise of white only Western governments, and they're attempting to accelerate uh, social change and establish a white only ethno state. So I think the immigration issue has is a recent change. Second is their use of social media, I think has been phenomenally important for the rise of many of these organizations because they're reinforcing each other on multiple continents. So when Brendan Tarrant, for example, who's the Christchurch shooter in New Zealand, when he posts his manifesto, it's read by people across the globe. Among others, Patrick Crucius, who is the El Paso Walmart shooter, who espoused a version of the great replacement theory that caused him to shoot immigrants, and he was targeting Mexican immigrants in the United States in El Paso. So you see that they're reinforcing each other as they're posting information, posting videos. And I think that's a second reason why. There's a third, which is concerning as we get closer to the U.S. election, which is there does appear to be a rise over the course of the presidency of Barack Obama for white supremacists to have a U.S. president that's an African-American. There have been similar comments in the far right internet chat rooms, the dark web about now having a vice presidential candidate that's an African and an Indian American. And I think that has caused growing concern among white supremacists. That may certainly escalate 
concern and even recruitment from some on the far right as well. There's a huge anti-Semitic component to this as well, isn't there? Yeah, there, there's a serious anti-Semitic component. We see the white supremacist side. We, we also see a component of the great replacement conspiracy that also focuses on Jews. So attacks at synagogues in Pittsburgh, for example, or other locations in the United States have also uh, been motivated by desire to get others out of the U.S., so this is blacks or African-Americans, it's Jews. And this goes back really to individuals motivated by various components of national socialism in Germany. In fact, what's interesting in Germany is the German government has banned at least three additional neo-Nazi organizations in the country just in 2020 alone, which brings the total of neo-Nazi banned organizations in Germany to roughly two dozen over the, the last few decades. So we see this sort of very strong anti-Jewish sentiment coming from some far-right groups that is pervasive in the US. It's pervasive in parts of Europe, certainly in the UK and Germany, as well as in Nordic countries. And it's a real serious concern. Well, you know, we saw in Charlottesville espousing the slogan, Jews will not replace us, which I'm assuming has to do with this replacement theory that you're talking about. We heard about blood and soil, and we're seeing this repeat itself in other incidents throughout the world. And it comes, whether it's Jewish people, whether it's black people, whether it's immigrants. And it seems to me that you're talking about this isn't going to dissipate now. This is going to continue to build, especially when you have candidates who are running for high office who are African-American, they're Indian-American, they're married to Jews. They're, you know, is there no end in sight of this in your view? Well, Andrew, at least for the foreseeable future, the next several months, at least the next year, I don't see an end in sight. I think the challenge is going to be that intelligence, law enforcement agencies, justice departments have to increasingly develop the resources to penetrate these organizations, arrest their key members. This does raise a lot of issues about whether the United States should designate domestic terrorist groups, including white supremacist ones, or create a domestic terrorism statute in the United States to deal more effectively with anti-Jewish, anti-Black, anti-immigrant organizations especially ones that are committed to violence. So I, I think it's a long-term problem, and it's not just arrests or seizing of assets of these organizations globally, uh, because you know what's instructive is in the spring of 2018, uh, several members of the Rise Above movement were arrested on their return from Europe. They had traveled to Ukraine to celebrate Hitler's birthday. They had trained with the Azov Battalion in Ukraine, which is a paramilitary unit of the Ukrainian National Guard. So we see a lot of transnational connections. There's also an effort, and, and I think this is where the private sector comes in, has got to keep on these organizations the way they did with the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda. They've got to get this stuff off mainstream digital platforms, because this is not just free speech when you're advocating violence. I think that crosses a line, and I think that's what Facebook is recognized, YouTube is recognized, and other organizations have recognized. So I think this is a long-term struggle in U.S. communities as well as virtually online. So two questions here. 
what is the hesitancy to creating policy and statutes and you know serious task forces and entities of our government that are going to go after these people? So that's question one. And then question two is, is if we're going to rely on private sector companies, social media companies to get these people and these organizations off of their platforms, aren't they just going to go and find dark web platforms somewhere else to talk on? Yeah. On the last issue, yes, that if you're able to take a lot of this kind of hate, it's more than hate speech. In some cases, it's really supportive, violent activity. You can certainly take it off mainstream digital platforms and it'll resurface on the uh, dark web. The problem, though, for the extremists is it becomes a lot more difficult to access the information in some of these. They're password protected sites. They're um, on the dark web. It sometimes requires some technical capability to be able to access sites. So I think it's it's at least an important step to get them off of easily accessible mainstream digital platforms. And that's what happens when you get their violent discussions off of mainstream platforms. And, you know, it's been successful in getting a lot of that kind of violent talk off of uh, these mainstream platforms by the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda, and it has contributed to a decrease in violence, including in the United States. So I think it's been helpful there. And it's, in some ways, it's been an, a useful model for, you're never going to eliminate it, but by taking it off these big platforms, it's much harder for a broad public to access it. And it's harder for them to recruit. Yeah, it's harder for them to recruit. It's harder for them to fundraise because it, now they've got to go through multiple levels to access that hate speech. So there was no hesitancy whatsoever, and for obvious reasons, to fight a war on terror after 9-11. What's the hesitancy now to fight a war on domestic terror? Well, I think from one standpoint, in my discussions with individuals from the FBI's counterterrorism division, as well as from some of the joint terrorism task forces, they certainly recognize there is a problem in the domestic terrorism landscape from some of these groups, white supremacists, anti-government militias, in some cases, some of the anti-fascists that do support violence. There's a balancing act for them. They've got to be able to look at the threat from uh, Shia groups like Lebanese Hezbollah, uh, Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, and other types of organizations. But I think the data increasingly is making the case for them that they need to be spending more time and effort penetrating these kinds of domestic, white supremacist, anti-government, involuntary celibate groups. And that's the shift that they're gonna have to make in resources, assets for recruitment, and other kinds of things, agents that are that are doing this. So I think that's a direction we have to go. But I think one of the problems, honestly, is that it gets politically divisive the current U.S. administration doesn't even want to call some of these organizations far right. They view it as politically unhelpful, as unpolitically correct, if, if you want to use that term, which is a bit surprising because virtually every major Western democratic country calls white supremacists far right. We shouldn't be focused on the terminology as much as targeting these kinds of individuals. But, you know, I mean, I was a little disappointed to hear all of the focus about designating Antifa, which has committed almost no terrorist acts in the U.S. 
And we have not seen the same kind of federal government focus on banning and certainly targeting groups like the Atomwaffen Division and the base, which are much more dangerous, much more inclined to violence, and certainly much more capable. So I think there's been a lack of priority at the top levels of the U.S. government to focus on domestic terrorism from politicians. Let's talk about Antifa for a second. We hear about Antifa in the news all the time. Like everything else, it's become politicized. Antifa certainly is a disruptive group, but as you just said, not really responsible for violence and certainly not on the level of the far right. Is this just another example of our leaders politicizing something that's dangerous and trying to make it something it isn't? Well, Andrew, this is where I think data actually matters. And, you know, there is some truth to concern about Antifa. Uh, Antifa, for those less familiar with it, it comes from the uh, contraction anti-fascist. It's got its roots as far back as World War I, as the period uh, right around World War I, where anti-fascist groups in Italy and Germany were established. What are the primary periods or events in anti-fascist lore occurred in October of 1936 outside London in what became known as the Battle of Cable Street. These were a number of anti-fascists that met and actually pushed back a big march led by Oswald Mosley. But if you fast forward through the World War II era, and then they become reactive again in the 1970s with a rise in neo-Nazi activity, there is some concern with anti-fascist violence. At least some Antifa do support the use of violence outside of government authority against what they call fascists and racists. So as one individual interviewed from Baltimore said pretty straightforward, you fight them by writing letters and making phone calls so you don't have to fight them with fists. And then he goes on to say things like, you fight them with knives so you don't have to fight them with guns. You fight them with guns so you don't have to fight them with tanks. But violence in the sense is legitimate. So I think what we do have with anti-fascists is a willingness to, to use violence outside of legal means to target individuals in the U.S. They're talking about fascists. And they have been involved in violent activity in locations like Berkeley, California. In July of 2019, Willem von Spronsen, who was an Antifa supporter and a member of uh, the Puget Sound John Brown Gun Club, which still exists, he attacked a U.S. Immigration and Customs detention facility with an AR semi-automatic rifle, and a, he attempted to ignite a 500-gallon propane tank to basically use as a bomb. He was going to be arrested, but he was killed in a shootout with police. So we do have some members that are violent and inclined to violence. But I think the reality is that as we look at the protests that occurred over the course of 2020, there were some members and supporters of Antifa at some of the protests, but they were generally not engaged in violent activity, certainly not in violence against individuals. And so I think in that sense, you have to put this in a context Yes, there are some concerns with Antifa in their desire to use violence, including outside of law enforcement agencies and in some cases against law enforcement agencies. But when you compile the data on who's committing violent acts, it's not Antifa. It is, at least for the moment, white supremacists, it's anti-government militias. That's where you need to be concerned 
not just in intent, but in capabilities and actions. Now, the numbers don't lie, and your report says what it says. I take it that some people haven't received your report so well and don't believe the numbers. Some people don't believe the numbers, don't want to believe the numbers. We try very carefully to also make it clear that as we're putting groups into categories, these are very standard terrorism categories of far right, far left, under no circumstances and in no way do these correspond to mainstream political parties in the United States. I think the platforms of both the Republican and the Democratic parties askew terrorism in any way, shape or form. So what we're not doing is equating these kinds of terms to political parties in the U.S. or elsewhere. So sometimes people, they don't read the terminology carefully. And then second, I have noticed that people have very strong views on who is a threat to society. But this is where conspiracy theories not being careful about what the data suggests, this is really important for this discussion. And this is why politicizing this discussion without looking carefully at what the data says is very unhelpful. So what I would say is where we try to contribute to this is, I don't care at the end of the day who is committing the violence. I mean, I do in protecting Americans, but the data suggests, you know, wherever it was going to come out, if it was far left entities, far right, ethno-nationalists, religious extremists, we were going to express and publish the data wherever it came out. The data indicates that these are white supremacists and other far right entities that are committing the most common and most recently the most deadly terrorist attacks in the United States. And if people want to take issue with that, let's do it on data. I would say if you're going to push back, push back on the data. And, and this is where we don't see a lot of pushback at the moment. People don't have data. This is one of the things that's so confusing to me. How is it possible that domestic terrorism, these are terrorists, after all, whatever you want to call them, they're terrorists who perpetrate terrorist acts. How is it possible that whatever you label them, they've become politicized? How is it possible that terrorists on whatever you want to call them are somehow being aligned with the Republican or the Democratic Party, which, as you just said, the last thing either party professes is this kind of hate? Is there a way we can depoliticize this? Well, I again, there is. And I think traditionally in the United States in the 1990s, I think it was very clear, even in the first part of the George H.W. Bush administration in the 80s during the Reagan administration, those governments were focused on protecting American lives, whoever was committing attacks. So I think the problem right now is that domestic terrorism has been caught up in a highly polarized political climate. And just like almost every subject whether it's immigration, whether it's now voting, whether it's the state of the economy, whether it's the coronavirus. The post office. Yeah, the post office. All of these issues <laughs> are politicized. And so I think fixing the way we even talk about domestic terrorism is part of a, just a broader polarized political climate that has to be fixed. And it, among other things, it has to come from mainstream political parties that stop you know, so if the U.S. is actually going to put together a domestic terrorism statute, it's got to include objective criteria 
that raised the possibility of prosecuting far right and far left groups equally. Any group that conducts terrorism as defined in U.S. code should be prosecuted and it should be regardless of what their ideological view. Do you think that there's a will in Congress to really adopt policy towards addressing these issues? Well, I do think there have been a number of congressional acts and congressional bills that have been put forward that have raised the possibility of designating specific organizations or creating a domestic terrorism statute. And I think there's a legitimate debate there, but it's not really on the political side. The debate is a First Amendment one, which is a serious one, which is how will the courts respond if you're designating domestic organizations and how do we think about free speech in this context? So what I'd like to see is to move on from the politicized comments about far right and far left and get into a more serious issue about how do we target some of these domestic organizations and think through the more serious constitutional issues, resources. Because, Andrew, the problem is we have individuals like a we have white supremacist in the Baltimore area who put together a plot to kill Americans to create a white state. He cannot be charged as a domestic terrorist. He had to be charged with transporting illegal drugs and guns across state border, which carries a much less strong penalty if convicted. And this is silly. He was just as much of a danger than the individuals in San Bernardino, California, that were inspired by the Islamic State. Yet one is called terrorism and the other is not called terrorism. We have to get beyond that false dichotomy. Seth Jones, a lot to think about here and a lot to act on. Really appreciate your time today. Andrew, thanks very much for having me. This is an important discussion. Well, let's keep talking about it as the weeks and months go on. Sounds good. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 